0: This reading is taken from Luke 18 verses 18 to 30. And a ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inher- inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, All these I've kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, One thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. And when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, Then who can be saved? But he said, What is impossible with man is possible with God. And Peter said, See, we have left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife. Or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of god who will not who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life good morning it's nice to be with you albeit
1: virtually this morning and hopefully i'll be seeing some of you on zoom in a few minutes time and hopefully when lockdown ends in maybe a couple of weeks time you never know we can all meet up in reality Amidst much depressing news, it was wonderful to hear last week about the potential breakthrough of the steroid treatment for some patients in hospital with COVID. A simple steroid could save some lives. Imagine the greater news if a wider treatment or cure or vaccine could be found for COVID. An end to death by COVID, an end to social distancing. An end to homeschooling, that would be a good thing for many in my family, including myself. An end to damage to the economy, to jobs, to welfare, to mental health. Sadly though, such a cure or treatment wouldn't actually bring an end to death, would it? My wife's a GP and as you can imagine, her life has been fairly busy recently, as with almost all of our other healthcare workers as well. Many of her patients have been hospitalised, some very close to death. Most were fearful then, some were terrified, and some have remained terrified, terrified of dying and what might lie beyond death. Despite escaping COVID, thankfully, death is still on their minds. Any vaccine or cure for COVID will not take death ...of humanity's agenda either. It's been on our agenda and in our faces since Adam and Eve turned their backs on their good creator. It's somewhere in our minds collectively since then. From Homer to Harry Potter, numerous films, including Infinity War... ...are full of death and our fear of death and what to do about death. It's in our books, in our films, in our lives. Which is why the question in today's Bible passage is so important... Look at verse 18 again. What must I do to inherit eternal life? What must I do to escape death? What must I do to not be terrified? What must I do to have better news even than a cure for Covid? What must I do? Deep down, we know there is something more to life than this life. How do we get it? Can we get it? And can we be certain about it? But before we get there, we need to back up a bit. In order to understand any part of the Bible, like any piece of literature, writing, article, newspaper, whatever, you've got to look at the context, what's going on around the sentences, around the chapter, around the book. And even more so when it's a one-off guest speaker. How do you know I'm not getting on my hobby horse, my favourite thing to speak about? Well, context helps us to understand a passage better and to check the speaker's agenda. So Luke's Gospel was written to give his readers certainty about what they'd heard about Jesus and to encourage his readers to speak about Jesus, the forgiveness he brings as the risen Lord and Christ. We see that at the beginning of the Gospel and at the end of the Gospel in Luke 1 and chapter 24. And then Luke carries on that theme with his second volume in the book of Acts. Luke's explicit purpose should help our understanding of all the passages of his gospel. Not to make them say exactly the same thing or be boring, but to give us certainty, certainty in particular ways about particular aspects of Jesus and the good news he brings, and the good news we're to bring others. That's the whole book context. The more immediate context of our passage is that from chapter 9, verse 51, Jesus has set his face towards Jerusalem. He's heading to the death that he's promised and the resurrection. And on his journey, he deals with different questions and issues and provides markers so that you know which kind of mini-section or question you're in. Luke writes, on the way, dot, 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 at various points, so we know which section we're in. And in our on-the-way section... It's 17, verse 11 to 19, verse 27. And as Jesus approaches Jerusalem, he's asked, when will the kingdom come? In 17, verse 20, people are wondering if Jesus is about to bring in the wonderful kingdom of God, the place of perfect peace, of no disease and no death, but destruction for God's enemies. And Jesus answers by talking about two aspects of this kingdom. He says there'll be a future coming. In 17, verse 20 to 37, it will be cataclysmic, unmistakable and divisive. What we think of as the last day or a judgment day, the day when Jesus returns. That's one aspect of when the kingdom will come. The other aspect is the present coming of the kingdom. In 18, verse 1 to 19, verse 10, Jesus tells people the kingdom is in the midst of them. It's among them. It's where his people pray patiently to a heavenly father. It's where the humble are exalted. It's where Jesus seeks and saves lost people. That's what it means for the kingdom to be in the midst of them. And that's the kind of work that Jesus has been doing for the last 2000 years. And then after that little bit, Jesus talks again about the future kingdom and how we should live in the delay between the now and the not yet of that kingdom. So today's passage, we're in the middle of that bit about the present coming of the kingdom, about who it's for. And it's been a shock for Jesus' listeners so far. Rather than an upstanding religious leader like a Pharisee, Jesus has said that an immoral, greedy traitor like a tax collector who simply relies on God's mercy can be in God's kingdom, can know the verdict of judgment day that He's innocent. He's justified. He can know that verdict today. Jesus told the parable about the Pharisee and the tax collector to people who are trusting in their own morality and righteousness in 18 verses 9 to 14. And then Jesus says that the kingdom, that being right with God, being accepted, can come to people who are like little children. People who have no significance in Jesus' day were children. And Jesus says you can enter the kingdom if you're like them. Great news, you'd think, but shocking for many people. And that led to our question today in verse 18. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, hopefully that's given us some bearings on where we're going and how we get there. Let's look at this passage then in more detail. Uh, The ruler, as he's called in verse 18, recognises something about Jesus, doesn't he? Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He asks. He's probably been listening to Jesus. He asks the same question as another religious leader, back in 10 verse 25, which led to Jesus' story about the Good Samaritan that you looked at last week with John. But last week's question was a test or a trap for Jesus. Our question today seems more genuine. And Jesus isn't harsh with the man. He looks on him with sadness at the end, doesn't he, in verse 24? But that's us get ahead of ourselves. What does Jesus say first? Well, look at verse 19. Jesus says, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Some of my friends on hearing that think Jesus is saying, I'm not God. I'm not divine. I don't think that's right from the rest of this gospel and the rest of the Bible. But it's also not being a careful reader of this particular passage. Does Jesus imply, why do you call me good? And no one is good except God alone, and I'm not good, so I can't be God? Or is he implying, you say I'm good, but no one is good except God alone. So are you suggesting I might be divine? I think it's this second implying, because Jesus wants his questioner to think through the implications of what he's asking. If you really think I'm good, you must listen to what I'm saying and do something about it. If you really think I'm good, are you prepared to follow me? Seems to be the implication of what Jesus says in the whole of this passage. And then in verse 20 to 23, Jesus talks about God's commands. Sometimes they're summarised as love for God and love for neighbour, as we saw last week. Other times they're summarised as the Ten Commandments, the ones that Moses was given on these tablets of stone at Mount Sinai. And here Jesus quotes five of those ten. Jesus says, You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. The Bible is clear. If someone can keep God's commands, they can be right with him. They don't need to fear death. They can be in his kingdom forever. Enjoy being with God forever. They can have eternal life. That was an offer to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. All they had to do was obey one command. Don't eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But they couldn't keep that one command, could they? The man says to Jesus, though, that he has done these five since he was young. Look at verse 21. All these I've kept since my youth. He's done the five commands that Jesus listed. I don't think there's any reason to doubt this. Jesus doesn't call him a liar. He seems a moral, upright, good kind of guy. Someone you'd want as a neighbour, someone you might want in your family, someone you'd be happy for your daughter to marry. But there's a problem, isn't there? Jesus only quoted five of the Ten Commands at Mount Sinai. These five relate to other people. They don't concern God, nor the man's own heart. And that's where Jesus now turns. Look at verse 22 and 23. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, One thing you still lack, sell all you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. But when he heard these things, he became sad, for he was extremely rich. Does the rich man lack one thing? Yes, he does. But it's the biggest lack of all. He lacks a love of God above all things. He loves his money more than he loves God. And his love, his lack of love for God, shows his lack of love in other ways too. Jesus doesn't quote the first four commands of the Ten Commandments. Those are directed towards God. And so the implication is he hasn't kept those commands. Jesus also doesn't quote the tenth command do not covet, which is about wanting what is not yours, wanting more and more stuff. That's something that clearly goes on in your heart and can't be seen. Jesus clearly sees his heart, which is quite a godlike thing, really, isn't it? And if we have be reading closely in Luke's Gospel, we'll see this elsewhere too. Whilst the rich man asks a genuine question, he's not a genuine disciple. He's not listened to Jesus in chapter 12, when Jesus taught about trusting God and not being anxious about material things. He's not counted the cost of following Jesus in chapter 14. He's not seen the dangers of loving money in chapter 16. Ultimately, he's not willing to give up his life and follow Jesus in chapter 9. The rich man can't give up his riches, and so he can't receive eternal life. He can't receive the ultimate vaccine. He can't receive hope beyond the grave. He can't enter God's kingdom. He can't have peace now about his future, or with God forever. No wonder Jesus looks on him with sadness. He can't do what is needed. Which begs the question... Can we? Can we do what is needed to receive eternal life? But before we answer that question, we need to ask, is Jesus asking us to give up our riches to follow him to receive life? Just like he asked this rich man? Well, no and yes. Yes. No, because he's speaking directly to this man and Jesus knows his particular heart and what's keeping him particularly from following God. Jesus doesn't ask this of everyone in Luke's gospel. And for example, just a few verses further on in chapter 19, verses 1 to 10, a very rich man, Zacchaeus, starts following Jesus and receives life. But Jesus doesn't tell him to sell all he has and distribute the money to the poor. So no, Jesus is speaking specifically to this man, to what's in his heart, to what's stopping him from following Jesus and receiving eternal life. But yes, there is a sense that Jesus is asking the same thing. Will we give up what is the, ever is the most important thing in our lives, in our hearts, At whatever is taking the place of God as the person who directs our life, as the person who should be first in all of our love? who directs our thoughts, our words, our deeds. Whatever it is, are we willing to give it up? If we do, we'll receive eternal life. Think about what gets you up in the morning, what you think about during the day, what keeps you awake at night, what do you desire most of all? What causes you to do what you do? It might be another person, it might be a feeling, it might be another religion, it might be a morality, a desire to do good. Or just a desire to please yourself in some way, to seek comfort, ease, that kind of thing. Can you give it up? Is it easy to walk away from all the time? I suspect not. I know I can't do it. I can't change my heart and its desires for comfort and rest and self-centeredness. And so in many ways I'm left in a similar place as this man, which is what Jesus then discusses. In verses 24 and 27, Jesus, seeing that he'd become sad, said, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, Then who can be saved? But he said, What is impossible with men is possible with God. Jesus tells people that riches get in the way of God. They get in the way of seeing yourself as a needy person, like a tax collector, outcast from society, like a child, insignificant. Jesus' comments about the camel and the needle show this. It is impossible for a camel to go through the eye of a needle unless you liquidise it. And then clearly it's not a camel anymore, is it? Jesus is being both absurd and humorous to make his point. It's impossible for a camel to go to the eye of a needle. So even more impossible for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And that leads to the crowd's question, doesn't it? Then, then who can be saved? They thought riches were a sign of God's blessing. If someone was so blessed by God and they can't be saved, then what hope is there for the rest of us? It's like us looking at Marcus Rashford. Putting aside that he plays for Man United, which is clearly wrong, he's done some amazing things. He's a rich young man, gifted at football, and has used his celebrity status to good effect, to great effect. It's shocking we can't feed our children in this day and age. But Marcus has got some good done for them. Marcus is the kind of guy who should inherit eternal life, shouldn't he? He's not immoral or selfish like other footballers or celebrities. He's the kind of guy our culture values. Like first century Jewish culture valued this rich ruler. Surely the ruler and Marcus can be saved. Surely they can receive eternal life. If they can't, then who? Well, wonderfully, Jesus doesn't say no one. Rather, he says, what's impossible with men is possible with God. The rich man can't give up his riches to receive eternal life. The Pharisee can't give up his morally upright, religiously pure ways to receive eternal life. Marcus Rashford can't give up his good deeds to receive eternal life. I can't give up my self-centeredness to receive eternal life. But what I can't do, God can do. No one can do it, but God can. The prophet Jonah says, salvation belongs to the Lord. Jesus says the same thing. It doesn't just belong to the Lord, though. He can do salvation. Jesus teaches elsewhere that he can change people's hearts, that the Holy Spirit can transform people's hearts and lives and turn them to God, to follow Jesus so we and anyone else can receive eternal life. What we can't do, God can. Just as Jesus shows a few verses further on, there he opens the eyes of a blind man. The blind man can't do that. Actually, no one else can do that either. It's a real wonderful miracle that points to an even more real and even more wonderful miracle that Jesus can open our blind eyes and dark hearts to him. So to those of us who are already following Jesus, be certain that God has enabled you to do this. You couldn't do it on your own. He's done the impossible in your heart. He's changed your heart. He's opened your eyes. He's made you like a little child, willing to hold out your hand to Jesus. He's brought us into his kingdom, something we couldn't do. Rejoice in this eternal life. Look forward to it. Luke wants us to be so confident in it that we talk about it with other people. We share it with those who do not have this hope. who are terrified, maybe. And most importantly, don't look down on others who don't have this life yet. We haven't worked it out ourselves. God has been kind and opened our eyes. We haven't put God first in our hearts. He's opened our heart to him. We shouldn't be those that look down on others with contempt. Jesus has already spoken against such people in the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. In chapter 18, verses 9 to 14. And to those of us listening who aren't already following Jesus, do you see you can't receive eternal life on your own? It's great you're listening in, but you can't have hope beyond the grave through your own efforts. Whatever you think is the most important thing in your life, this won't give you eternal life. And you can't give it up on your own either to receive eternal life. Do you see the desperate state you're in? If you do, And like a little, insignificant child, come to Jesus. Like someone who's an outcast tax collector, come to Jesus, ask him to do the impossible. To change your heart, to open your eyes, to give you eternal life. Will you? But before we finish, just for a few minutes, we've got some final words of Peter to look at. Having heard all this from Jesus about how impossible it is to be saved... Peter seems to ask Jesus whether it's worth giving up anything and following him. Look at verse 28 to 30. Peter said, See, we've left our homes and followed you. Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, there is no one who's left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. It's hard to know Peter's tone. Is he boasting, we've done it, or complaining, was it worth it? It's hard to know, but Jesus reassures him it's worth it. It suggests that Jesus doesn't think Peter is saying he's done it, but that Peter's suggesting we gave up everything, but we won't receive anything because it's all God's work. But Jesus reassures him, saying it is worth it in this life and the next. A couple of American friends moved to this country 50 years ago to help students in London know more about Jesus, to tell them about eternal life. They left homes and family and yet say God gave them many homes and many families through the believers they've got to know here. Another friend, a Pakistani, started following Jesus about 25 years ago. His family disowned him, disinherited him, have tried to kill him. He's lost everything, yet he too says he has many homes and many families now through his unity with other believers. And I know friends at THCC who say the same. So for my friends at THCC, for my American and Pakistani friends, even if they haven't received good things from fellow believers here, and they have, they each say it's still worth following Jesus. They have peace with God now, forgiveness forever. They have eternal life to look forward to. They don't fear dying. They're not terrified like my wife's patients and maybe your neighbours. They have real and certain hope beyond the grave. They have good news that's even better than news for a cure of COVID. Are you certain of these things as well? Are you able to rejoice in them? Are you able to share them with others? Maybe those who are terrified. I hope so. Let's pray we'd all be more certain of these things. Let's pray now. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that you can do the impossible. You can open our blind eyes, open our dull hearts to see Jesus, to know who he is. Thank you for helping many of us to be like little children and come to him. Please would you carry on that work in many others in our area, drawing them to the Lord Jesus bringing them out of their fear of death and giving them eternal life. Help us to be more certain of these things and more able to speak about them with all kinds of people. In Jesus' name. Amen.